Welcome to episode 41 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Nestled in between the Jaguars' win against the Colts and the Jaguars' game against the Kansas City Chiefs this Sunday. Last weekend, I took a great trip out to Indianapolis, which I really do like as a city. It's friendly and walkable, and it's home to St. Elmo's Steakhouse, which is always a treat, and which was this time too. In addition to the game at Lucas Oil Stadium, we went to a AAA baseball game at Victory Field, which is a lovely little ballpark. I've actually been there before. Given what happened to the Cleveland Indians, now the Cleveland Guardians... It was funny seeing a team named the Indians play in a professional baseball game, but, well, they play in Indianapolis, so they can't really change the name, can they? It would be like the Los Angeles Los Angeleses deciding that Los Angeles was an offensive name. Okay, now what? In that respect, the Indians are like the Utah Utes. In 2021, Duval County, Florida, near me, voted on the question of whether to change the name of Andrew Jackson High School. The final tally was 4-3 to three against, which, whatever one thinks of Andrew Jackson, and I'm not a big fan, makes a certain sense when you consider that Andrew Jackson High School is in Jacksonville. Are we going to change that too? Probably not, right? Right? My guest today is the historian Neil Ferguson, who is currently serving as the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, who is a senior faculty fellow of the Belfast Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard, and who is the author of a great many books, including Empire, How Britain Made the Modern World, Colossus, The Rise and Fall of the American Empire, and Civilization, the West, and the Rest. Neil, welcome to the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. It's very nice to be with you, Charles C.W. Cook. Can (laughs) I call you Charlie? You can, absolutely. Good. So, you have written a good deal about our being our being the west the united states in particular in another cold war or cold war 2.0 and i thought it would be good to start by asking you what is a cold war why are we in one and why is this the first time we've been in one, in your view, since Cold War 1.0? Well, first, Charlie, I want to correct the nomenclature because okay. we're not talking here about software programs. It's Roman numerals, Cold War 1 okay. and Cold War 2, by analogy with World War 1 and World War 2. Got it. As Brits, we would, of course, say the First World War and the Second World War, so we should also say 
the first Cold War and the second Cold War, but I think we have a predominantly American audience. So I'm talking about Cold War II Roman numerals because I think we have meandered into a second Cold War without quite noticing. And that's exactly what happened at the beginning of the first Cold War uh, in the in the 1940s. Orwell came up with the best definition of Cold War in 1945. He called it a, a peace that is no peace. And in a brilliant article that he wrote for Tribune, he said that there were now going to be these nuclear, these atomic superpowers, which is a pretty impressive bit of a prognosis since at that point there was only one and it had only just revealed itself. But he said there'll be more than one. In fact, he predicted there'll be three and they will tyrannize the world. Uh, and part of the way they'll tyrannize it is by being in a state of cold war with one another because hot war won't be really possible with atomic weapons. You have to hand it to Orwell. He was good. And so the situation we're in today pretty much conforms to the Orwell analysis, namely that there are now two superpowers. Of course, there are more than two nuclear powers, but there are only two superpowers economically and in terms of technology, and that's the United States and China. And they are in a state of peace that is no peace. They can't really go to war with one another, or they might, but there's sort of the same disincentives that existed in Cold War I. Any war between the US and China would escalate rapidly and could be catastrophic, could become nuclear. So it's a reasonable bet that we're going to replay, at least in some respects, the first Cold War, which was with the Soviet Union. And I say in some respects, because they're not identical any more than World War I and World War II were identical. They're quite different in many ways, but they were similar enough for it to make sense in the 20th century to talk about a second world war. And I think we should be just as direct. Uh, This is a second Cold War. It's not identical, but it's pretty samey. Why can't we just coexist with China? Why, why do we have to be in a Cold War with them? We're much more economically integrated with China than we were with the Soviet Union. Why not just say, well, we have our differences, but hey, this is this new globalized world and it's complicated and we'll live with that. Well, that is certainly one of the biggest differences, maybe the biggest difference between Cold War I and Cold War II. The economic relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union was more or less non-existent in the 50s and 60s. There was a little bit more trade and so forth in the 70s and 80s. But today, the United States and China are amongst one another's principal trading partners. It's no longer number one because Mexico just overtook China with the US, but it's still a huge part of US foreign trade, and there's still a lot of US investment in China, and some the much less Chinese investment in the US. Now, does that stop us having a Cold War? No. Actually, in some ways, it makes certain aspects of the Cold War easier. Espionage, as you know, was a key part of the first Cold War. It gave rise to literary genre and a whole bunch of movies. But, you know, espionage in the first Cold War was conducted by relatively few people, and we knew pretty much, not exactly, but we had a good idea of who who the Soviet spies were, and they had a pretty good idea of who our spies were. They weren't really very numerous. 
Today, a huge number of people of Chinese citizenship are in the United States. And there are quite a lot of Americans in China. They're not as many. And you don't quite know who's actually directly working for the Chinese government, though that's a difficult thing to resolve given the way that the CCP relates to Chinese society. At any event, I think it's important to recognize that lots of economic interaction doesn't stop you having a Cold War because the Cold War essentially, as Orwell foresaw, is conducted as a competitive rivalry in the domain of technology. It can also be conducted through indirect warfare. One of the interesting things about Orwell's vision, you'll remember that it was realized more completely in 1984, is that there's a sort of permanent state of psychological war, of propaganda war, between the rival blocs in his dystopian future. The United States and China can do all of that kind of thing. They can compete to see who has the most powerful AI or who gets to the quantum supremacy first. They, they can compete much as the US and Soviet Union competed in space as well as over nuclear weapons. They can spy on one another. They can say mean things about one another. They can try to get other countries to side with them against the other. They can do all the Cold War stuff, in other words, but with the complication that there's just that much more intermingling of the two economies and the two societies. I actually think that makes this Cold War in some ways more dangerous. It's certainly really much harder to manage Chinese espionage on the United States than it was to deal with Soviet espionage, to say nothing of all the ways in which we've become much more of an open society since the advent of the internet. Do you think that the nature of this rivalry is becoming more rather than less obvious. If you go back to the 1990s, it was regarded by many as an inevitability that more economic and cultural intermingling of the United States and China would liberalize China. That seems to have been the prevailing sentiment for a lot of the early 2000s. And yet... China has become more obviously ideologically different than the United States. It's leaned more into Maoism. There's a certain re-Sovietization of its economy. Is it going to become more obvious that there is a big difference between the United States and China in the future? Well, I think it's already very obvious. I guess it could get more so. I think it probably has to. I wrote a, an article for the Wall Street Journal back in 2007 about Chimerica. Moritz Schillerich and I came up with that word because we were trying to work out just how intertwined the economies had become. And the argument of the piece was that they'd become so intertwined that they were really one economy, and we called it Chimerica. But th this was a pun on the word chimera because mm -hmm. we, we made the argument that this was completely unsustainable and indeed was likely to produce some kind of a crisis Unsustainable because the benefits of Chimerica disproportionately went to the Chinese middle class. I mean, China was getting much higher growth out of Chimerica than the US was. And the beneficiaries of Chimerica in the US were predominantly the, the wealthy elite, the 0.1%, who were making investments in, in China or whose companies were benefiting enormously from outsourcing to East Asia. So the benefits just were very skewed. It was very asymmetrical. And the other problem with Chimerica was that 
flows of Chinese capital into the US economy, mainly arising from reserve accumulation. The Chinese didn't want their currency to get stronger, so they basically bought a lot of dollars. And as they accumulated dollar-denominated reserves, the US couldn't quite understand why, but its interest rates stayed very much lower than they might otherwise have been. This was Alan Greenspan's conundrum. So we argued that that would probably lead to some kind of a crisis in the US housing market because rates really ought to have been higher. And they did generate or at least contribute to the real estate bubble that burst in 2008-9. So we didn't think Chimerica was sustainable. And I think we were right about that. The thing that's fascinating is that it took quite a long time for the breakdown of the economic relationship to produce a political backlash. Even after Xi Jinping came to power and China did embark pretty obviously on a more ideological trajectory and in a more overt bid to challenge American primacy in what we now like to call the Indo-Pacific. And I think if you'd asked me in 2007, how long would it take for Americans to turn on China? I would have said, oh, not that long. But it wasn't until 2015 that an American politician, or at least somebody who decided to become a politician, openly challenged the bipartisan consensus on Chimerica, which was really dominant, as you say, from the 90s, especially after 2001, when the US allowed China to join the World Trade Organization. And that man was Donald Trump. Trump said he was going to campaign to be president in a substantial part on the China issue. And for me, the fascinating thing about the eight years that followed was that in a very short space of time, his views on China went from being outlandish and maverick to being mainstream to being bipartisan. So that by 2018, what had started out as tariffs as a trade war in Trump's mind had sort of morphed into Cold War II. And it was in 2018 that I first realized, hang on, this is turning into a Cold War. It's sort of looks like one and it walks like one and it quacks like one. So, I mean, five years ago, it struck me that we would we were heading into some kind of Cold War. It's taken a while and still, even today, there are plenty of people who will say, no, 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 we mustn't call it that and it mustn't be that, including the Biden administration, which routinely says, not, not least in its new national security strategy document, that we're not in a Cold War. Um, and the, the funny thing is that the more they do Cold War things, the more they insist they're not in a Cold War, which must create a certain amount of cognitive dissonance in and around the White House. Yeah, well, let's talk about Cold War things then. Let's start with domestic questions, then we can move to explicit foreign policy. So we have an open society in a way we didn't. You mentioned that. We have free trade now with China in a way that we didn't have with the Soviet Union. It's much more difficult to tell who is a spy from the Chinese Communist Party than it was back during the first Cold War. Should we take drastic action? I'm not talking about tinkering around the edges or slowly coming to terms with our predicament. Should we say, right, this is a disaster, we need massive tariffs, we need to stop Chinese people buying land or attending US universities, we need to ban TikTok... Are we taking this seriously enough? Well, we've already taken some of the measures that you mentioned. We don't have free trade with China anymore. Tariffs that Donald Trump imposed have not been reduced, much less eliminated by the Biden administration. And Joe Biden's imposed additional 
measures which verge on economic sanctions against China, of which the most significant was the ban introduced by the Commerce Department last fall on China being able to access the most sophisticated semiconductors and the machines you need to make them and the people you need to run the machines. So that the economic side of the relationship has already moved in a cold war direction and it continues to move in that direction. The latest thing that the administration is doing is making it harder for US venture capital and private equity companies to invest in any Chinese firm that might possibly be involved in artificial intelligence, etc. So the days of free trade with China are quite some distance in the past now. Uh, There are moves to restrict access to Chinese apps, in particular TikTok. I think it's been banned in Montana. Of course, that doesn't achieve an awful lot. But it's in discussion, and I don't think it's a crazy discussion to have I don't think many people would have predicted 10 years ago that the dominant social media and entertainment app for young Americans in 2023 would be a Chinese-owned app that specializes in acquiring data on user preferences in order to supply them with the dancing ferret videos that they're most likely to enjoy. (laughs) That certainly wasn't on my my bingo card when I was thinking about these things. It should have been because I actually taught the chief executive of TikTok when he was at Harvard Business School. He was very smart then, and he's turned out to be very smart in business. So I think we're still at an early stage of understanding what to do about our openness and therefore vulnerability to the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, when they are relatively closed to anything we might serve in return. And since most of the big Western apps don't really have any traction in China. That's a big asymmetry. And you can argue about how big a problem it is that that American teenagers hand over so much data to the CCP. But you certainly can't claim it's a symmetrical uh, relationship because we just can't do the same to their Chinese counterparts. Are we doing enough? No. But I, I think we're neglecting much more important areas than social media. We we are in particular really neglecting our ability to contain China militarily in the Indo-Pacific region. Let me give you some examples. So the Chinese Navy is now quite a bit larger than the US Navy. And that's been true for a few years. And the difference is only going to grow because the US is really not in a position to keep up with Chinese shipbuilding. They have way more shipbuilding capacity than we do. And we on allocating the money that we would need to keep pace. So the US is losing a naval race, which seems like probably quite a quite a bad idea if there's going to be any kind of conventional conflicts. We have serious problems with our submarine fleet, 60% of which is available for action. The rest is essentially undergoing repair or is obsolete. And I could go on with a long list of deficiencies in the U.S. capacity to contend with China in the eventuality of a conflict. And that's, of course, what makes a conflict more likely. If if the U.S. can't credibly deter China uh, from, let us say, blockading the island of Taiwan, then China might well do that. And, And that would confront any president with a really huge dilemma. So... I would say that the biggest lesson of Cold War One 
is that the United States mustn't lose its military credibility. It mustn't allow the communist superpower to pull meaningfully ahead in terms of war-making capability. And that's that's the area of negligence that I think is of most concern. We're, we're doing more to compete in terms of civilian or dual-use technology. And, and this brings us to the, the Chips and Science Act, the attempt by the Biden administration belatedly to bring semiconductor production back to the United States. I mean, that'll take a while. If, if you want to take the fabs of TSMC and rebuild them or build versions of them in the US, you won't do that in a couple of years. It might be more like 15. And even then, I think you'd struggle because it's just not going to be as cost effective as doing it in Asia. We're at least trying to do something about the deterioration of our, of our industrial base, our technological manufacturing capacity. But even as we're doing that, I think the, the big worry has to be that we're falling behind militarily, or in some areas, the Chinese are catching up and we're not paying attention. So how do we best convey to the Chinese that we are serious? There is a debate on the right at the moment between a group of onlookers who say, look, we are spending too much time and money and attention in Ukraine Despite the evil of Vladimir Putin and the perfidy of his invasion, what we should be doing is looking to the Pacific, which is where our threats lie and where our future lies. And then others will say, no, no, you don't understand. First off, the way our international alliances work, we have to show that we can play in Europe, back up our allies in Europe, if we are to maintain them as allies in the Pacific. And also the way that you convey to the Chinese that you're serious is by intervening in the conflicts that actually happen, not just preparing for one that could plausibly happen in the future. Where do you sit on this debate? Well, first, I think one has to kind of get into perspective what support the United States is is giving to Ukraine. It's not a vast amount of money that is going to support the Ukrainian war effort. And I think that's that's worth saying because I think that often gets lost sight of if you go to the Ukraine support tracker and you just look down the, the summary of bilateral commitments the US is on $77 billion. Um, in fact, recently, the European countries overtook the US. Uh, so the US is spending a relatively small proportion of its vast resources on this war. And the argument has been made from pretty early on by some people in the administration and some close to it, that this is a good value for money proposition because the Ukrainians are degrading Russia's military capacity, and what a bargain compared with, say, the global war on terror, which cost trillions of dollars and in the end did not transform Afghanistan or Iraq in any profound way. So I've heard that argument made. I have my doubts about it because I think there is a sense in which our attention 
And certain critical resources are being absorbed by Ukraine at a time when we really need to keep an eye on other potential flashpoints. We are running down the stocks of certain kinds of weapon that we've given the Ukrainians and can't now make available to anybody else. That's clear. There's a bunch of of hardware that we really don't have much of now. And I think there's also a sense in which the debate on Ukraine distracts at least some sections of the public from what would be a much more dangerous crisis for US security, namely a crisis over over Taiwan, which which ultimately would challenge American primacy in the Indo-Pacific if it turned out badly. So I think I'm quite sympathetic to Elbridge Colby, who's a good example of this strain of thought amongst Republicans, when he says, this is distracting us from the main event. And this will strike some listeners as reminiscent of arguments that went on even before Cold War I, arguments about the relative importance of European and Pacific theatres in in World War II. There's no question that the 21st century Cold War is a cross-Pacific, trans-Pacific event. And it won't be won or lost in Ukraine. It won't be won or lost in Europe. Uh, This Cold War will be decided if it's to be decided anywhere in in Asia. So I I think we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We need to be able to prevent Russia from recolonizing Ukraine. We need to be able to deter the People's Republic of China from taking control of, of Taiwan. We also need to be able to keep an eye on Iran, which we are currently not doing. Because the Middle East hasn't stopped being a powder keg in the last few years. It's just gone quiet. And the, the thing about Cold Wars that I've learned from studying the first one is they have a way of kind of happening everywhere all at once, or at least in multiple theatres. That's precisely the challenge of being a superpower, that you you may find yourself with crises in three different places at once. This is the I call this the three-body-of-water problem that you might actually have to worry about the North Atlantic, the Taiwan Strait, and the Persian Gulf all at once. And the US military and naval capabilities of today just aren't up to that. And a a double or treble crisis would reveal that. What sort of institutions should we be building or encouraging? In the, the first Cold War, we had NATO. What would a NATO look like in the Indian and Pacific Oceans? In the first... Cold War, we had Radio Liberty. We tried to win hearts and minds behind the Iron Curtain. You said that we don't have the equivalent of a TikTok in China, which makes it more difficult to project strength. In my view, the idea that if we, for example, exported American institutions such as basketball, we would Americanize the Chinese, has actually worked the other way around in that the (laughs) NBA has now become more pro-Chinese, and you have people in that league who won't say anything bad about China, including the NBA itself, because they don't want to lose out on the money. What sort of institutions should we be building to help us in this fight? And you could, of course, say the same about Hollywood, which used to reliably churn out more or less uh, American propaganda in Cold War One. certainly didn't hesitate to depict the Soviet Union as a nasty place run by nasty people. And now, you know, in, in Hollywood, they agonize about anything that might possibly upset yeah. the powers that be in Beijing, even a 
a rogue map in the Barbie movie, I seem to remember reading somewhere. <laughs> I did not go to see the Barbie movie, I hasten to add. So the answer to that question is that we don't really try because the things that were so effective, and they were effective in the first Cold War, including Radio Free Europe, those things have, to a large extent, dwindled, been underfunded. There isn't really that much that the government does. And as for the foundations that were quite active in the cultural Cold War, they're also woke these days, that the last thing they'll do is say a good word about the free world, an expression that's probably been cancelled at most foundations long ago. I think that's why in Cold War II, we aren't really doing much in the cultural domain that's effective. And one illustration of this is that in China, they watch fewer and fewer Western movies. The most popular movies of the last couple of years have been movies about the Korean War in which heroic Maoist peasants wreak havoc against American villains. Worth watching the trailers of those to get a flavor of culture in Xi Jinping's China. I would say that the success of TikTok and the kind of wimping out of Hollywood are two sides of the same yuan, if that's not too clumsy a phrase. <laughs> All right, so I want to zoom out a little bit and ask about your framework here. You wrote in a piece on this topic, all history is the history of empires. All history. What does that mean? Well, ever since people started to think it would be a good idea to write down what just happened... Empires have generated a huge proportion of the records that we historians pore over. So, I mean, most recorded history, and it's you know, 4,000 years of stuff, uh, has actually been produced by empires. Nation states are a quite recent phenomenon. Republics in the ancient world didn't tend to last very long. Didn't tend to last very long in the early modern world. It's only quite recently that people managed to get republics to go for more than a couple of decades. But we have this somewhat myopic view of the past, uh, I think largely because of the powerful leftist ideologies that now prevail in, in education. And so we make believe that there are certain parts of history which are very wicked and they have to do with empires. And when, when we use that word, we're just talking about the British and the French and German and the Belgian empires that Europeans created mostly in the 17th, 18th, 19th century and, and lost in the course of the 20th century. And, and this is just a completely illusory way of thinking about the past. The Europeans were quite late to the imperial game. They were late comers by the standards of the Ottomans who'd been running a large empire in the remnants of the Eastern Roman Empire. The Chinese had run an empire for centuries before the Europeans got the idea to get into boats and try and colonize places. And so wherever you look, you essentially see that the most organized large-scale polities were empires. They weren't nation states. They were nothing like so homogenous. And they knew, nearly all had unfree labor as a feature. Slavery was not something that wicked British toffs dreamt up. It was it was the least original thing Europeans did when they, when they went overseas in the 17th and 18th century. So I, I would say if one takes a look at history properly and looks at all the different civilizations that have left meaningful residues that we can study, it's nearly all 
some kind of empire or another. And I think if you look at the United States and China today, they behave just like empires. I mean, I've thought this for a long time. It's a, usually thought of as a left-wing position to say that the United States is an empire. When I came here 20 years ago, it was kind of pretty obvious to me that it was doing such classically imperial things that there was hardly a debate to be, to be had. I mean, marching into Mesopotamia, that's a pretty imperial thing to do, heading into... Afghanistan, how many empires have tried that before? So that seems, that seems obvious. The interesting thing is China, because the Chinese love to tell the story about how they've never, ever, no gosh, God forbid, ever engaged in any kind of territorial aggression. And this, this gets churned out in speech after speech, completely untrue. I mean, they're, they're just the thing we call China today, the people's bug of China, is this legacy of, of imperialism that can be traced through the Qing, back to the Ming, it grew pretty rapidly despite the problems of the Qing era. And, you know, you can rename it and you can say that actually there are only these tiny numbers of ethnic minorities, everybody else is Han Chinese, but it's obviously not true. Um, but the reality is that China's an empire too. And the more they protest that they never, God forbid, take anybody else's land, the more you say, um, can we talk about Tibet? So I think we have, just as we had in Cold War One, an American empire confronting Russian empire. That was clearly what the Soviet Union was. Well, here we are again. To me, that just seems so obvious that it's sort of almost boring to have to point it out. But I have to keep pointing out because that's just not how most people teach history these days. Well, you've applied that framework even to a period in which there were a great number of nation states. And you've written that World War II was a struggle between empires, not between European nation states. What do you mean by that? When I was a schoolboy and an undergraduate, uh, I, I was taught European history as if it was a story of European nation states, recognizably the nation states of my own time. But as I began to delve more deeply as a postgraduate, I began to realize that this didn't make sense, that the world wars were fought between empires with enormous global reach, that the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland was the hub of a global empire that covered about a quarter of the world's land surface and was something that could only have fought two world wars successfully on that basis. I mean, you just couldn't possibly have done what Britain did between 1914, 18, and 39, and 45 without the empire. And I think that starting point helped me when I wrote The Pity of War, which is a book I did about the First World War, and then War of the World, which is the book about the Second World War, to try to recast this history, get away from the idea that there were these constant nation-state players engaging in, in regular contests for, quote, mastery in Europe, and show that, on the contrary, mastery in Europe was only a part of the recurrent global struggle that Britain and France had fought imperial wars in the 18th century repeatedly. So I think, looking back on my historical education, I, I was lucky to free myself early on from the conceit that history is a story of nation-states, their formation and, and competition, and to realize that this was a huge distortion, and that Ultimately, the players in, in the world wars are only players because they're imperial. And part of what they're fighting for is, 
is global predominance, not just mastery in Europe. And Russia today is still an empire. I remember being somewhat stunned early on in the invasion of Ukraine to realize that at least some of the troops perpetrating atrocities in Bucha outside Kyiv were from the far, far east of the Russian Federation. You know, we, we still think of Russia as some rather large nation state, but it's not. It's the last European empire with a large Asian hinterland. And you can't understand it if you, if you don't see that. And you don't have to travel too far to encounter it. I can remember being in Kazan when we were filming War of the World and, and thinking, hang on, Tatarstan, is, that's not Europe. I think we get these distorted images because of not only the books we read, but the way we travel. We have a tendency to go to capital cities and and infer too much from them instead of traveling around and realizing once you travel around in a place like China or a place like Russia, you realize it's an empire and nothing like a nation state. All right, here's a million dollar question then. Who's going to win this Cold War? We won the last one. The stakes are high. But you know, things go on till they don't. There's no guarantee that the order that we have had since the Battle of Waterloo to now will persist. Are we going to win it? We ought to. But we'll lose it if we just assume that we will. We'll lose it if we're complacent. I think what made the United States prevail in the first Cold War was a constant fear of defeat and a sense that it, it actually all was really kind of touch and go. We don't have that feeling now because precisely because of that victory in, in the 1980s. And we therefore think, oh, if push comes to shove, we all, we'll, always, we'll always win. And Bob Kagan wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal a few months ago saying, ah, oh, the lesson of history is that anybody who dares to poke the American eagle will come off worse. And I thought this piece was wildly wrong. Because this is just not the United States of Pearl Harbor. If you did Pearl Harbor to the United States today, which would involve Chinese surprise attacks on Guam and other U.S. Pacific bases, the U.S. does not have the industrial capability that it had in the early 1940s and continued to have through Cold War I. The United States is also much less united around the ideals of freedom that people thought the yeah. Cold War was about. There's so much more division and disagreement about what the point of the country is. And because the left has devoted itself to a critique of the United States as an imperialist power, it's entirely unready to wage any kind of committed war to uphold freedom against China. Now, I think China is a formidable totalitarian system. I mean, it is in ways that Stalin would have salivated at, equipped with extraordinary technologies for social control and coercion, surveillance, and so forth. And that makes it a formidable antagonist in a way that the Soviets weren't. It has a much larger economy than the Soviet Union. The Soviet economy was at most about 41, 42% the size of the U.S. in terms of gross domestic product, well, China's not that far behind the U.S. Um, if you measure it on a purchasing power parity basis, it's actually already bigger. If you do it on a current dollar basis, it's like 80%. But there are still people who think that China will catch up. So it's economically a far more formidable opponent. And because the Chinese 
use the free market to power a big part of their economy, which the Soviets never did. They have an ability to innovate that is deeply impressive. And they're not that far behind in artificial intelligence. They're not that far behind in the race for quantum computing that really works. So I would say, for all these reasons, this is a much tougher assignment than Cold War I. And I can see ways that the United States could lose it. I'll give you an example if I have time, Charlie. Sure. I keep worrying that in Cold War II, we're the Soviets. Because we have the old doddering political class. We have the Jurokopoulos. Biden as Brezhnev. Biden as Brezhnev. We have, it seems to me, a kind of death wish about our foreign policy. They don't understand deterrence at all in Washington these days. We consistently lose escalation dominance with Putin, who just has to say the word nuclear and everybody runs for cover. And I can imagine a scenario in which the Cuban Missile Crisis replays over Taiwan and the roles are reversed because in the Taiwan Semiconductor Crisis, it's China that blockades the island And we are the ones who, like the Soviets, have to send the naval expedition across an ocean, risking World War III in the process. And I keep remembering how Khrushchev ended up folding. Yeah, there was a backdoor deal about missiles in Turkey, but nobody knew that at the time outside the Kennedy clan. And Khrushchev was humiliated. I can imagine the United States completely bungling a Taiwan crisis. I can imagine that happening next year. I mean, they bungled Afghanistan. I'm, honestly, they bungled Ukraine, the biggest failure of deterrence in my lifetime. And they could easily bungle Taiwan. And that, that's the way in which we could, well, maybe not lose it, but we could certainly dent the credibility of the United States in Asia massively by sending a naval expedition and then telling it to turn back because World War III is just a bit too scary on a, in an election year. Here's a related question. What is your view of the potential for the Chinese people to, in effect, side with the United States? I'll tell you what I mean by this. I love America, as you know. I see America still as a shining city on a hill. And I love it here in Florida when I meet people from Cuba or Venezuela or Colombia, who say, this is the promised land, and I left my communist or socialist or drug kingpin addled place, and I came here. And you meet people, they're a bit older now, but you meet people who came from the Soviet Union, and they also love America. And this was a story that I grew up in Britain knowing and enjoying, because I thought everyone in the world wanted to be free and wanted to be American. And... My faith in that was a little bit diminished in the early 2000s when the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq did not yield people who were actually, in every case, yearning for Jeffersonian liberties or for democracy. Where is China on this scale? I mean, is China full of people who we could just get to them with the right radio show and just broadcast the right messages and lessons and invitations would 
be likely to put pressure on their government and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't fight the Americans? Or do the Chinese people actually quite like their system? Are we kidding ourselves? Well, I've spent a fair amount of time in in China pre-pandemic. I would say that there is a pretty broad nationalist consensus that extends from the very educated down to the not very educated that believes China has emerged from a century of humiliation under the leadership of the CCP and is reclaiming its rightful place as one of the top nations, if not the top nation. That is very widely believed. And there's been, I think, a notable failure in the West to appreciate how broad that consensus is. I mean, you will certainly get people muttering about the corruption of uh, the party elite, the princelings, there's all that kind of muttering. But that does not translate into, if only we could have regime change here and the star-spangled banner. That's very, very marginal. Chinese who study abroad, of course, there have been millions who've done so, often come to the United States and are impressed by many aspects of what they see, but not by others. And I think a a very interesting feature of Xi Jinping's ideology is the extent to which it contains a quite pronounced anti-American streak informed by some of those intellectuals who who came and, and saw and didn't like what they saw. So I think there's almost 0% probability of a major revulsion against the regime, given that it's delivered so much economically since Mao's death. And since there's remarkable nostalgia for Mao and almost total amnesia about the mass murder that he perpetrated. And I've traveled widely in China. I did a television series for British television back in, I think, 2011 or 12. We went to Mao shrines, you know, places where the Chinese come to Changsha, the different places that are associated with Mao's life, just get huge throngs of people paying homage to a man who was essentially deified in his lifetime. So I think we should hold out almost no hope of a legitimacy crisis for the system unless the wheels really come off the economy. But I think if they do, and it may be that they are already coming off the economy because it's clear that growth is heading down to low single digits and there's even some signs of deflation, I think in those circumstances, the CCP can count on nationalism to maintain its legitimacy. And that might indeed be why a showdown over Taiwan would suit Xi Jinping quite well. I mean, it's a gamble for him. I mean, if, if he's really calling our bluff. And if, if there were a, a shooting war... If Cold War II turned hot, it would be very tough for China as well as for the United States. But I I sense that the thing that that would decide it would not be the morale or national sentiment of the Chinese people. That looks pretty solid to me. All right, last question, a brief one. The last Cold War lasted, what, 45 years? How long do you anticipate this one lasting of course that's wildly speculative it is. But do you think we're in it for the very long run i mean could it be 100 years 
history sort of goes a bit faster than it used to. I, I have a general rule of thumb that anything that took 100 years in the 17th century probably takes 10 years now. Everything's sort of 10 times faster as a rule of thumb. So I actually think this Cold War will go faster than Cold War I. I don't think it'll take 40 years for it to be clear which side is stronger. And I just can't tell you with absolute confidence and certainty that the United States and its allies will win. I think we've got it in us. We are sufficiently decadent that we could blow it. And the shorter the time frame, actually, the more likely that is. I think we could sort ourselves out in 10 years or certainly in 20 years. There are lots of things the US can do that China can't do. Like, where's China's Elon Musk? They don't import talent. The US imports talent. Look at you, Charlie. You're a shining example. <laughs> Brings the talent in from outside, gives it capital that it can't get anywhere else. Boom. Chinese can't do that. The US is going to win the innovation race, even if its political class is utterly incompetent. It'll still prevail. Look at California, governed so insanely badly that it, it deserves to be Argentina. And yet, <laughs> despite the best efforts of Gavin Newsom and his merry cohorts, a China, in a California economy is kind of unstoppably HQ for AI innovation. So I, I think time ought to be on the side of the United States. You could solve most of America's problems with immigration reform. My theory is you could get it through Congress by just calling it the Immigration Reform Against China Bill, and everybody would vote for it, and done. But, you know, we could blow it before we get that done by having the Cuban Missile Crisis over Taiwan and being the Soviets. That's how you lose Cold War. You lose Cold War too by being the Soviets, and we're much closer to doing that than I think we realize. And on that nightmare-inducing idea, <laughs> <laughs> I shall say thank you, Neil, for your time. This was fantastic. I appreciate it. Be my pleasure, Charlie. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Neil Ferguson. Thank you to you for listening. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>